Thanks for downloading a 3CR podcast. 3CR is an independent community radio station based in Melbourne, Australia. We need your financial support to keep going. Go to www.3cr.org.au for more information and to donate online. Now stay tuned for your 3CR podcast. And everyone, welcome back to Solidarity Breakfast. A left response to the major developments in capitalism. What they trade in is not wheat. They trade in famine. A little dose of revolutionary optimism. I think it's really important to sort of express solidarity globally. It really is a deal by corporations for corporations. The union forever defending our rights down with the black If you think the ABC's left wing, don't listen to this program. Solidarity Breakfast, 7.30 to 9am Saturdays, 3CR, 8.55am. Streaming and 3CR digital, podcast or audio on demand. And of course, the website, solidaritybreakfast.org.au. Solidarity forever! Welcome to 3CR Dick and nice to hear Thanks you very much, again. Nice to be here. <laughs> okay, today we've. Cabinet's chosen. I don't know yep. whether it's yet been formally sworn in, but that's just a formality. Okay. So they've got a left of centre, is that right? Left of centre government at what? the moment, yes? Oh, okay. that, that's one that's been proposed to what, take part. What it is, it's a very interesting story here. Um, it's a Socialist Party only government, um, and you should, we should remember the Socialist Party brought in uh, the European Commission, um, the International Monetary Fund and the European Central Bank, the so-called Troika, uh, and the horrible memorandum package back in 2011. Uh, but they then, they, they then lost the election and the actual implementation of that package fell to the right-wing government, which is a coalition of the Social Democratic Party and the D- Democratic and Social Centre, which is... Uh, you know, there were ones a neoliberal, ones a more conserv- just traditional conservative party. Um, and though they got the relative majority, they lo- the, what happened was that this time round, the Socialist Party, the Communist Party, the left bloc, and the Greens, which usually work in tandem with the Communist Party, uh, reached an agreement for a Socialist Party-only government. And so this is a very new thing. Um, for a number of reasons. Firstly, because the Communist Party and the Socialist Party in Portugal have a very history of great hostility, um, and, but also because the left bloc, uh, the vote for the left bloc, operated as a sort of pressure on the Socialist Party to turn to the left. If they had just uh, tried to do a deal with the right wing, that would have been the end of them as a party. You know, if they had just said, oh, well, we'll, what they had said was we will be a, an opposition, an opposition to uh, the right, but we don't want to form a government, which is what their right wing was saying, a lot of their right wing people were saying, uh, then this, uh, they would have paid the price too. So really they had no choice but to sort of look to the left, and it was the proposals coming from the left bloc during the election campaign 
which said, well, our bottom line is no more cuts to wages, pensions, uh, begin to restore pensions and wages. Um, and on that basis, and, and some, other, some other points, um, and on that basis, we will give you support against no confidence motions from the right. Um, there's not even an agreement there that they will necessarily agree with all the budget measures. I mean, they, they, they said we can't, you can't ask us to agree to budgets for four years uh, before even seeing them, um, but we will have our input into budgets. And there's a whole lot of other stuff. So it's a very interesting situation because um, basically neither the Portuguese ruling class, the big, big business in Portugal, nor Brussels wants this because it opens up the whole business of an alternative, for possible alternative policy to, uh, to what is being driven from, uh, you know, the, from, from, from Germany and, and through Germany from, uh, from Brussels. So, but in the end, the president, who had first appointed a right-wing government, which was then lost a vote of confidence, in the end, though he, against all his desires, he had no choice but to do this. And that's what happened. That's, so that's the background to it. So The pathway to this is an interesting one, too, because they've had many years of right-wing government, and now they have come into this left bloc, so to speak, the socialists, the left bloc, the communists, and the greens. But the, the, the interesting factor is the mobilizations of people against the Troika's measures this lasted three years, which ended, what, last year, wasn't as strong as Greece. No. It's a totally well, different, different dynamic, yes, isn't well, it? That's what you learn, you know, that these all countries are different, and the political dynamics are very, very different. Um, Greece, where you had this sort of catastrophic, explosive decline into depression, you know, a quarter of the uh, GDP gets cut. Uh, made worse by the actual intervention of the uh, IMF and the other powers, other economic powers. Um, what happened in Portugal was that it just enforced stagnation. Uh, austerity just enforced mm. stagnation. And the feeling, it was not like a disastrous decline. It was less than even in, in Spain, in economic terms, in terms of GDP loss. But it was a, an abominable thing, and it still is an abominable thing. But what it created was this feeling of no future for the young people, economic stagnation, and what can you do? Well, what, and, and there was a wave of big demonstrations up until 2012, which is a sort of broad movement which was called Screw, Screw the Troika, which brought the biggest demonstrations in Portuguese history. I mean, we're talking about a million and a half people in Lisbon. I think that was in mid-2012. Wow. But the difference with Spain, for example, and with and Greece was that this didn't give birth to a new political movement. There were people who wanted it to do that. So it was a big social mobilisation, and then it just went, zoom, it just deflated totally. And you just had the same parties there. At the same time, you had a crisis. The left blocs went through a terrible crisis where they had a huge arguments about what they should be doing. At their last Congress, I was there. They were, you know, they were on the point of split at that. They looked into the abyss and decided, no, this, we don't want to go there. And then they actually hauled themselves out of it. It's quite an extraordinary thing. Um, and from getting just under 5% of the vote, or just over 5% of the vote, they got 10% of the vote. And what they got this time was the vote of working people 
who couldn't bring themselves to, bring, to, to vote socialist uh, but didn't want to vote for the sort of old, stodgy, uh, always the same message, Communist Party, which is just says, you know, vote for us, that's a vote against capitalism, uh, and which also puts forward a, you know, let's leave the, let's leave the Euro position straight away. Whereas the bloc says, we ca- the bloc's position is, let's fight the debt. Uh, we know that, that you can't, while you stay in the Euro, or stay in this Euro, as it's, or- as it's organised now, you can't break the back of austerity. You can't have a different e- e- economic policy that allow, enables growth and regeneration and, uh, of the country and gives a future to young people, etc., etc. But uh, you don't pose this thing as an attack on the euro because, you know, as in Greece, the vast majority of Portuguese people want to stay in the euro. They associate the euro with, you know, advanced as opposed to the and, and, and civilised Europe as opposed to the old dictatorship they lived under for 50 years, you know. So there's a whole history there. Um, anyway, that's the, that's the sort of very rough sketch of the background to it and the, and the sort of social, social yeah. psychology of it. So what's had, what had to happen was the Socialist Party, if it was going to survive, had to make this sort of deal both with the uh, left bloc, which was, had the initiative in all of this. If it, was, if it wasn't for the left bloc, this wouldn't have happened. And then because of the initiatives of the left bloc in putting forward its minimum line, the Communist Party had to come online. Mm. But you know, it's a very odd thing because it was a very old, it was very... This, deep hostilities, traditional hostilities between these organisations. So what happened was that the Socialist Party made separate agreements, separate agreement with the left bloc, separate agreement with the uh, Communist Party, separate Communist. agreement with the Greens, but there was no joint agreed platform. What they ended up, the Socialist Party ended up with was a series of measures, about 70 measures, made up uh, from these three separate agreements. That's it. So... So you've got a situation where the president is above the prime minister and he has now declared that the, this coalition, so to speak, uh, can take power. But he has imposed six conditions, according to the reports I've seen. And they're, in, they're interesting because given that the bailout ended last year and there's 78 billion euros, I don't know if it's 78 billion per year or it's a total of 78 billion and you've got the six conditions which are really, I don't know it, it, it's like a no-go place, He's, they have to promise compliance with Eurozone budget rules and guarantee the budget and commitments to NATO uh, the role of permanent council for social con consultation, which is basically a group of labor and business leaders that consult with the government, and they have to ensure financial stability, conference motions. The other six, I think I've mm. read yeah. all six out. And, and then you've got a country that has got 12% unemployed, 20% of people live uh, below uh, poverty, uh, the poverty line, Four, almost half a billion of, million of people have emigrated from Portugal between 2011 and 2014, and they've got a 125% debt in de- to debt to yep. GDP. Doesn't gel, doesn't gel. What's, well, what's what going on? You, have a, you now have a big, a big struggle. Um, I should make very clear that the Socialist Party always said in their negotiations with the smaller parties that they were not going to talk about leaving NATO, they were not going to talk about debt 
uh, restructuring. They're not going to commit to debt restructuring, though they've committed to a discussion about that, a parliamentary committee on debt, and I'll, I'll just come back to that. Um, so, you know, the agree, the, the, what was agreed to, the basis of the agreement is very, very simple, is no re- reductions in the minimum wage, increase, increase the minimum wage by 10% in real terms mm-hmm. over four years, which is saying reverse the austerity as it affects uh, wages. Uh, so there's a whole series of measures um, in, which I put in the links, links article to do with defence of the union movement, defence of the right to organise, which the Brussels nobody wanted to touch, but which was impossible for them to say no. You know? So you've got a set, of, a set of measures which represent a retreat from austerity uh, agreed. Now, if the Socialist Party goes back on this, they lose the support of the other smaller parties, which are not participating in the government. On the same hand, on the, on the, on the other hand, sorry, they have the uh, the six major, the six comprom- uh, commitments that you've just read out. Mm. So, what does this mean? Where does, where does this? How does this fight evolve? Um, if there is some growth in the economy, which is a huge if, it will be possible, it may be possible, to meet the commitments with the other left parties and these commitments with the president, which means Brussels. That's just Brussels and big business. That's not, the president's just a figure through which these demands are, being, are coming, right? It may be possible to manage mm. them at the same time. Maybe, but it, probably not. At this, because... If you look at the situation, the big problem in Portugal is debt uh, and the lack of investment. Now, you, the private investment, the private capital is not going to increase the rate, its rate of investment there unless they've got guarantees of profit, etc., etc., you know, business-friendly government, blah, 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 usual stuff. Uh, <coughs> and you can't step up the rate of public investment uh, unless you have a renegotiation of the debt. So what the position of the left bloc is, they've explained all this in some very good, good articles, is um, we, will just, we will hold this government. We're not going to participate in this government. We don't rule out participating in a future government. We have to be very different because we would have to take positions on the debt. Um, but we will, hold, we will support this government against the right, which wants to actually cut wages further, which wanted to reduce pensions uh, even more. Uh, which wanted to dismantle social security, privatise left, right and centre, which is another point which uh, is in the agreement. No more privatisations. They're finished. Um, and now we have a big fight about this. Now this is a, is, is a fight. Now this government is squeezed. It's squeezed between the other left parties who represent, we should say what they represent, they represent a million people who voted, voted to the mm. left. But a million people is not a majority, it's a, it's, it's a minority, right? But it's, it's a mobilised, it, it'll be a mobilised minority that can grow, right? So what the left bloc comrades are saying is we're in for a period of struggle, um, even just to get what the commitment, the agreement is, well, there'll probably have to be big struggles, let alone anything else. But the only way forward now is to have uh, this struggle, and it's obviously much better to be having this with a socialist party government than with the alternative. The only possible alternative government is a repetition of the right, whom everybody hates and who've made life a misery for the majority of the population. So, I don't know whether I explained it properly, clearly, but that's, that's the sort of 
battlefield on which this is going forward. If you've just tuned in, you're listening to Solidarity Breakfast on 3CR, 855 on your AM dial and streaming live on the web. We are in the process of interviewing Dick Nichols, who is a Green Left weekly correspondent from Barcelona in Spain. We'll have a short break and continue with the rest of the interview. Come down to the Lomond Hotel in Brunswick East on Saturday the 28th of November at 9pm for the Joe Hill Centenary Tribute Concert. Old Time Union Band, Bob Mancor, local Melbourne musicians plus special surprise guests will perform songs of workers' struggle and pay tribute to a man who inspired Woody Guthrie, Paul Robeson, Joan Baez, Pete Seeger, Bruce Springsteen and countless others. For more information, visit www.3cr.org.au. In Salt Lake City, Joseph's I'm standing by my bed. Certainly a period of uncertainty, and um, it sounds like the president's wishing for the impossible. He wants, he wants stability, and, and the situation as it stands sounds very unstable. Well, he, he's, now, yeah, the, no, just he, on that, he, he did not want this to happen. He gave, he gave speeches yes, yes. saying we cannot have the left bloc and the Communist Party in, a, in an alliance with any role in government. But that was counterproductive. When he gave those speeches, which was immediately after the uh, vote of no confidence in the, the right-wing government he appointed, uh, that caused such a negative reaction in the countryside, mm. in the country. Of course, it said, oh, well, it doesn't matter how you vote. You know, a million people's votes is worth nothing. You know, they can't do, you know, they can't, they can expect nothing. And the actual political impact of that was to, uh, was to actually weaken the position of the right. Then they went berserk themselves and behaved like fools, like kids who'd had their toys taken away from them. Uh, and that, that made the thing yes. worse for them. And that, and I, they cut their losses because if they don't, if they kept going on the, on the previous line, they would have lost the presidency, which is up for election in January. Uh, so they would have no way they could get the presidency. They're going to have a lot of trouble winning it anyway. Um, so they would have lo- mm. to hang on to one of the you know the key pieces on the chessboard. They've decided this is the the least evil way to go. So, but uh, as I just repeat, you know, it just opens up a scenario of of, of tussle and mass struggle and pressure coming from Brussels, pressure coming from big capital in uh, in Portugal itself. They've got a bank crisis just sitting under the surface there. Pressure coming back from the working class movement. Also organised labour, which is not as destroyed in Portugal as it is here in Spain. Uh, and so that, that's, that's the scenario. Oh, God, what a thing to happen. In the middle of all the refugee crisis, the Paris, whatever happened, the, the yeah. blast, and then this, this climate change conference happening, Portugal's is it's really it, the whole the whole area geographical area seems to be bubbling away in all sorts of fashions, and I'm wondering how Portugal's going to get investment um, if the right wing are going to hold back the way you're describing, and the economy of Portugal. I mean, what does it produce? Is the other question I want to ask. Well, Portugal's well, Bob, yeah, that's a good question, isn't it? Uh, Portugal's got <laughs> tourism. <laughs> Massive tourism. It's got a lot, you know, the English middle classes are going to get their house in the uh, Algarve or the Alentejo. Yes. Uh, it's got <laughs> uh, it's got some industry. 
uh, for example, it, it's got a niche uh, specialisation in cork production for you know wine bottles and stuff like that. That's it's the biggest cork producer in the world, and there's actually a Portuguese cork multinational which uh, has bought up all the uh, you know cork industry in Catalonia. Um, it's got uh, it's got a, quite some high tech, some high technology. And it's got the possibility of, do, of having development of, agri- of, of niche organic agriculture. Actually, very good possibilities. Um, the left block has done a lot of work on this. Uh, on the, you know, what would be a decent economy look like in Portugal? But the precondition for it is is a big increase in public investment and in infra- infrastructure, and a program which sound, might sound familiar to people in Australia of uh, program of green transition. In, in, in energy yes. and uh, in, in, in agriculture. And, of course, the other big thing they've got mm. is fish, fishing because of the Atlantic coast. Um, and, then, and then there's mm. the, all the historical connections because with, um, with historical and actual economic connections with Brazil uh, and with the other Portuguese colonies, uh, which still is a, you know, a commercial connection, a very important commercial connection for Portugal. But it's not. It's a good question because it, it's not. There are people in Portugal who think it should become a province of Brazil, because mm. because it, what's the point of being part of this the European Union? There's a Brazilianist tendency, put it that way, in 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 Portugal, uh, and there are people who say, well, you know, we would be better off as part of an you know expanding, uh, you know, third. Well, not that this is happening at the moment, but you know, expanding Brazil, growing rapidly. Uh, and being part of a sort of Lusitanian um, uh, economic confederation than being just the, the poor cousins of Europe. So anyway, that's that's you've just put, you put your finger on a real real issue. There. <laughs> yeah, I mean, it, what does it mean to be part of the euro? This is a phenomenon I don't understand, despite the fact that. The euro has brought so much destruction, so much misery to all these countries that are in the EU. People still seem to have illusions in the EU because from my research, the EU is really, it's like a cartel. It's, it's a bourgeois cartel. That's nothing for the people. And yet the people seem to want to be part of this well, thing. Got, I don't well, understand it. It depends which people you're talking about. Um, you, uh, Europe, in the European Union though this is changing, still in the south, which is ironic because it's where the greatest pain has been inflicted on behalf of the euro, still in the south is associated with progress, getting out of backwardness. Uh, There's immediate economic uh, interests in the sense of, you know, the euro does for business, makes it easier to do business across the whole whole of Europe, you know, it reduces transaction costs, uh, eliminates exchange rate, need to hedge against exchange rate movements, all that stuff. All All expenses. That's all true. That's That's why I called it a cartel, because it's easier for for the bourgeoisie to do business. It's also, for working people who've got a job and have got savings, the old day you had to go with your escudos or pesetas and change that into another... A currency when you went to France or you went to Belgium or wherever on, on holiday. Now you just go across Europe and you've got these things called euros, which you've got the same, more or less yeah. the same purchasing power everywhere. So 
there's a contradiction in the heart of working people, and this is what was at the heart of the Greek crisis, between those who feel they would lose from reverting to their old currency and those who have nothing to lose because they haven't got anything. You know, so this is a, a division that goes right down the middle of the, of the working class. And, and then you've got the middle classes. It's a terrible phrase, middle classes. What does that mean? But, you know, they're working people too. They're better off professional classes, etc., etc. So whenever you in Greece or Portugal is, or here, there's a, whenever there's a poll, are you for leaving the euro? No, the vast majority of people for, for staying in it. Um, but that doesn't mean there isn't a minority that would get out. But it means that the left, which says, who analyse all this and say, the, as, you know, along the lines of you, you, you said, the euro is just rubbish. The euro is just there as an instrument for, you know, the advancement of German capital and making a, a bigger power imperialist European uh, economic block against the United States, against Japan and the rising powers, China, etc., etc. Uh, it, you know, people will say, oh, that's all true, but it doesn't work politically. That is not a, a functional political line. It doesn't get people saying, you know, you don't get people out in the streets saying, yes, out of the euro, let's go. <laughs> yes. That's, no, <laughs> not, uh, very, it makes it so complicated for the left, you know, if, even if you wanted to do the right thing. You are caught in this bind between the people who've got illusions in this uh, the eurozone, and the the bourgeoisie who are happily walking to the back because they can do whatever they well, want. Well, I think the, on that, there's been so much thinking about this and so much discussion, uh, and the, this whole thing called you know I don't know whether you've heard about in Australia this Plan B uh, campaign yeah. in Europe, which arose out of Greece. That is to say, it's a, it's, a, it's, it's a discussion and a proposal advanced by the Parti de Gauche, the left party in France, Jean-Luc Mélenchon, uh, Oscar, um, Oscar oh, I can't remember his name, the former leader of the German Social Democracy, former, uh, former uh, treasurer, um, the f- former finance minister in, in Italy, I'm sorry, I haven't got the names in front of me. Uh, and, okay. and, 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 of course, Varoufakis. And uh, Zoe Constantinopoulou. Yes. And basically it's saying, mm. well, we have to have, what's our plan? You know, well, the basic problem with Greece was that they were just put against the wall with a knife to their throat by the European Central Bank. That's it. So that's where they, that's mm. basically what mm. happened. Now, so how do we change this? Yeah. Uh, if we don't agree, if the people don't want to just leave and go back to the old, you know, the drachma or the escudo or the peseta, then we have to have a new proposal for what should happen at the level of Europe. And I think that's, that's true. On the other hand, you can't just say permanently, oh, well, we'll just cop anything for, in, in order to stay in the euro, which, yes. which, which is right. the debate right. that, uh, at, you know, at the Partizigos Congress, they, they came up with a good position on that. They said, yeah, we fight for a different Europe. We fight for a different Europe. We fight for a different European Central Bank. We fight for different uh, economic policies. We fight for, you know, some even simple things like uh, European debt. You know, no, you can't have European mm. debt under the, you, know, you can't have common European debt like you can have in the United States, for mm. example. You've got a federation of the United States. If Missouri is more indebted than, you know, Utah, it doesn't make any difference. Nobody even notices it, you know. Uh, 
because yes. it's all yes. you have common debt and away you go. You just have a, your debt targets and you, you know, raise your money, etc., etc. So issue your, your uh, debt instruments, etc., etc. So that's all a good discussion, um, but it doesn't solve your political uh, situation in the short run. That's the that's no. No, no, the situation for the poor working class mob who are homeless, you know, um, jobless well, and so on and so on. This young is where the... Who have nothing to well, look forward to. Well, this is where I think... Well, it's interesting. I think this government... This, the, other, the big problem they're going to have if, with Portugal, because everything comes down to this in the end, which is that what level of hope and commitment and willingness to struggle is there in the mass of ordinary people. That's what determines politics. Absolutely. Mm. And the effect of this... The formation of this government, I think, is... I don't know, I haven't read all the latest stuff and I haven't been in touch with the uh, people in Portugal, but the, all the messages you're getting was that this is, will create an atmosphere of not, oh, you beauty, everything's going to be sold, but of at least there's some alternative being built. You know, we're not expecting miracles, we're not expecting that everything's going to change overnight, but, you know, this, uh, this feeling that there is nothing, there's no light at the end of the tunnel, there's just tunnel... Uh, that's starting to lift, change a bit, which puts mm. a lot of pressure on the on the mm. on the government. And and, and the left sure. bloc has had has got a very good position, I think, you know, that very sane sort of position on this, which is we yep. you know what you're trying to do is build majorities. We, you build majorities around progressive politics, and the next thing we've got to build a majority around, uh, carefully, thoroughly, is the debt. The debt, yep. big time. Big do time. the debt. And then through that discussion, which has to go with, you know, mass mobilisation of people in support of what the Socialist Party has promised it will deliver, um, through that, then when you get to a situation where we're still in stagnation, there might have been a bit of an improvement, uh, more and more people will understand the problem is the debt and behind the debt, the euro. uh, And then you've got Mm. the possibility of, you know, coalition between the Greek government um, you know, the, the Greek government, the, the Portuguese government for a, for a European-wide debt conference, which is what the series have proposed, has been proposing for a long time. Uh, and it becomes something that, you know, can, be, can, be, can become a ta- tangible, a ta- tangible, 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 something that people can mobilise around. Uh, and it goes out, comes out of the, it, it moves out of the sphere of theoretical debate and nice ideas and into the sphere of political possibility and political action. You know. yeah. And on that note, we shall finish the interview there. And thank you so much, Dick. You have been fantastic throughout the year. You have a good right, break. Right, thanks. And we shall be in touch okay, in the well, new year. That was Dick Nichols, the Green Left Weekly correspondent from Barcelona in Spain. Thank you. Uh, Dick, and uh, I hope you enjoyed that um, update on Portugal, which you would not have heard in the main media. So a lot of information there about what's going on in Europe, while the main media is just talking about uh, the important issue, the refugee stuff. Now, getting back to the climate change issue, um, today is the last day of the sort of campaign 3CR has been conducting and building up to the climate change, uh, climate change march that happened yesterday. Um, I had an opportunity to talk to Alan Sandell about their policy. And, of course, Alan Sandell is the Member of Parliament for in Victoria, and she is also an environmentalist and a member of the Greens Party. 
But let me just play this thing before I get to that interview. The People's Response. Climate Action, Climate Justice. A special three-year series. Interviews and comments in a lead-up to the Paris Climate Talks. Climate Action, Climate Justice. Alternative Voices. The People's Response. Welcome to 3CR, Solidarity Breakfast, Alan. Um, I believe that the Greens had a launch of their uh, climate climate, um, policy called Renew Australia. I'm wondering if you could tell us um, what that's about. Sure. Well, thanks for having me. Uh, It was a very exciting launch on Sunday. I joined our Greens leader, Richard Di Natale, and a number of other Greens MP to launch our national climate change policy. And it's a policy to really make Australia a renewable energy superpower. For too long, we've got our energy from old sources such as coal, which have helped us be prosperous in the past, but they're not the things that will help us be prosperous in the future. That is about clean energy technology. And so our policy is about really transforming the entire energy sector towards renewable energy and making sure communities and workers aren't left behind during the process. Okay. So what are the details of it? How would you convert uh, such a high coal-producing country with so many coal mines and also we are aware that um, Adani Mines is um, edging its way into Queensland. Um, how do you expect to stop those processes uh, in, in relation to the reduction of renewables, or is that not your pathway? Yeah, well, we, there's a number of different elements to this policy. So overarching, we'll have a new authority, a government authority called Renew Australia, which will be tasked with this huge task of changing our entire energy system. And then there are a number of different strands. So one is building new clean energy, and we'll do that through a number of different mechanisms, a reverse auction system like has been very successful in the ACT, and also government borrowing to directly build infrastructure like we used to do. And because interest rates are so low at the moment, that's a really good way to go forward at the moment. Uh, But then, of course, we need to look at transitioning away from old coal power, uh, and we'll do that through putting pollution intensity standards on coal plants so that they have to reduce their emissions over time and then eventually close. And then we'll have a special fund called the Clean Energy Transition Fund for coal workers and communities to help find them new jobs and to set up new industries in those areas. So we would, money for renewable energy, we'd have a preference to spend that in places like the Latrobe Valley uh, where people uh, are moving away from coal into renewable energy. So there's a number of different strands uh, and then of course the grid, building a smarter grid uh, which will actually bring down electricity prices. So it's something we know we need to do. There's a number of different elements on how we would get there but it's, it's very achievable. We just need the political will from the government to make it happen. Mm, key question, how the political will is the one you need to conquer, isn't it? Yes. <laughs> it's always very difficult. That's right. So what, what, That's plans, right. what plans do you have for that generation of political will? Mm. Well, the reason we launched the plan on Sunday is because we know that the Paris UN climate talks are coming up. Yes, of course. And at the moment, Malcolm Turnbull's climate policy is still pretty much the same as Tony Abbott's climate policy. He's taking mm. very, very low level of ambition and very small policies, we have to say, That's to right. the climate talks. Whereas 
places like the US are, are reaching for much higher ambition and we should be following their lead. So partly this launch was timed to set the bar for Malcolm Turnbull to say, you can aim higher. This is the kind of plan we should have for Australia. Now jump on board. Mm. So have you had any negotiations with any of the other parties or even independents in relation to this uh, policy you've launched? We talk to the other parties all the time about our policies and the thing about this policy is it's creating a new authority called Renew Australia. It will work in conjunction with three other important bodies, the CSIRO, of course, for their science and research, the Clean Energy Finance Corporation and the Renewable Energy Agency. And they are two bodies that are doing important work in renewables at the moment. And actually the Greens are the ones who set those up when we were in minority uh, government with Julia Gillard. We, we're the ones who asked for those and got those set up. So if the Greens were in balance of power again, no doubt we could get Renew Australia as well because we have a track record of getting wins on climate in the past. Mm. The other question is, how are you going to deal with the coal industry? It's a very powerful lobby, isn't it? Well, there's actually much fewer jobs in the coal industry than everybody thinks. And the number of jobs just installing solar power are already more than jobs in coal. And so I think we need to disbunk, debunk this myth <laughs> that, uh, that coal produces lots of jobs. Look, it's, it was important for us in the past but it's not the way we're going to create jobs and prosperity for the future. Everyone knows that the future is renewable energy and we just need to make sure that the government hears that message from the community. Mm. And how is that going to happen? Because unless people mobilise or threaten them with votes, there's always a tricky thing. So what strategies do you have? I know you talk to them and you've mm. set, set a um, agenda that is way, way left to where Malcolm Turnbull and his party policies at the moment. So any specific strategies that will help you achieve those goals, or even half those goals, will be fantastic. Yeah, that's right. And you're, you're right to say that we need people to mobilise and to vote. And just this on Friday, in two days' time, I know all around the country people will be coming together for the People's Climate Marches in places all across Australia. There will be a huge one in Melbourne that I'll attend. And that's time to send a very strong message to Malcolm Turnbull's government that you can't have the same policies that Abbott used to have. And there'll be tens of thousands of people on the street sending that message. So that's a really good start. The momentum is building. Next year we'll continue our campaigns. Here in Victoria we've been running a campaign to phase out the Hazelwood coal power station and replace it with clean energy. And I'll be continuing that campaign next year as we go into a federal election year. Mm. The other question, maybe a tricky one, maybe you have or have not thought about it, is the signing of the Trans-Pacific Partnership, because from my readings, I know in India, when um, the, the uh, Modi government wanted to introduce solar panels across the country, investing billions of dollars in India for this project, the American and, and foreign um, utility companies have uh, taken them to the WTO and have got a win stopping them from proceeding with that project. Have you thought about how this is going to sit with the TPP? Your plan is fantastic, but how is that going to gel with the TPP? If, well, the government is discussing it and, and looking at signing it in March, from what I understand. It's really scary, isn't it? The Very. fact that we're opening the door to let big corporations sue our governments just because they want to do things that protect people and the environment. It's just incredible. I cannot believe the Turnbull government has been allowed to do this and that so many governments have signed this really dodgy deal that was done in secret. It's incredibly 
scary. We've seen tobacco companies sue countries like Uruguay just because they were trying to introduce laws to reduce smoking. I mean, come mm. on, that is just so ridiculous. And I'm, like you, I'm really worried about it. I'm really worried that companies like coal companies might be able to sue Australia for trying to introduce renewable energy policies. So yes. we need to do everything we, do, we can to fight against the TPP because... It's a real, it could have a really scary outcome and also make things like pharmaceuticals and drugs much more expensive than they are and that's not the kind of society we want where we put big corporations' profits ahead of the health of our people and our environment. Mm. So the Greens haven't actually talked about the, how you're going to tackle this issue because it will clash directly with your amazing policy you've put forward. Mm. Yeah, well, we've been campaigning very strongly against the TPP and talking a lot about that and hopefully the fight's not over and that we can still win on that one or we can build enough momentum around our clean energy policies that uh, we just build such a groundswell that no company will dare sue the government because they know that the government will throw everything they have at it because they know renewable energy is so good for people and the planet and is so popular. Mm. It's, it's a big question, isn't it? The other thing that influence climate change and the emission of um, CO2, just reading Naomi Klein's version of all this stuff, is, is the war. Um, there's heaps of um, you know, problems in the Middle East. Um, in terms of sending our, our soldiers overseas to participate in, in those wars and, and buying jets and sending them overseas, um, have the Greens thought about um, what approach they're taking on that one? Yeah, so we're the party of non-violence and we always have been. One of the things we've been talking about recently is that Parliament should actually decide whether our country goes to war. At the moment, the Prime Minister can just decide at the stroke of a pen whether we go to war and there's no mm. debate about it. So we can go into wars over oil, for example, with really no scrutiny and that's not okay. And so once we have... When we have all these large problems in the world that are so interconnected, climate change, refugees, mm. war, all of this is really connected and we should have a debate about it. We shouldn't just let the Prime Minister decide on a whim whether we go to war or not. So that's a really big issue. Mm, sounds good. And that, I assume, includes the refugees coming from Syria to Australia soon. Yes, well, one thing that people don't often talk about is with climate change, the incidence of refugees worldwide will increase. And there are more people already uh, who are fleeing their countries and seeking asylum than at any time uh, since the world wars. And it's for a number of factors, of course, but one of them is environmental change and drought, which fuels a lot of these conflicts. And if we see sea level rise, we'll see our Pacific neighbours start to go underwater. They'll need somewhere to live. And everyone deserves to have a safe place to live. And so if we think that we um, are seeing lots of people who are in need of protection now, there'll be even more once climate change gets worse. Hmm. That's an important point, isn't it? Because there has been controversy around what um, Mr. Dutton said about the Pacific Islands and so on, and not an iota of um, empathy with the people who are struggling to keep alive on those, on those um, very low-lying islands and this possibility That's of right. having to vacate um, at any point. That's right, really. and Peter Dutton's comments were so insensitive to just dismiss that these people will lose their homes and think that it's a joke. It's not a joke. And I was also really disappointed to see a couple of weeks ago Bill Shorten went to the Pacific to talk to world leaders. But then one of the world leaders, uh, the president of, um, I think it was at Kiribati, uh, President Anoche Tong came out and said 
we need a global moratorium on new coal mines because that's what's fueling climate change and killing our country and our people. Uh, yes, Bill Shorten has said, oh, we were standing in solidarity with the Pacific Islands, and he goes there and he drinks with them and he eats with them and he accepts their hospitality, but then when they say, will you support a global moratorium on coal, he says no. And I think that's so disrespectful that the, the one thing they need for their survival, he's refusing. Okay, finally. Now, um, Larissa Waters and Richard Di Natale are going to Paris. What exactly are they going to do? Because there's a ban on uh, marching on the streets in Paris. Are they, uh, official, are they part of the official contingency that's going to Paris with um, Malcolm Turnbull? What's, what's happening? There's lots of things for people to do in Paris, and so they'll be taking our, our policy and our call to Malcolm Turnbull and to other delegations to meet with particularly other Greens from around the world to talk about how we can actually advance this agenda and to join in with Pacific Islanders who have this global call for a moratorium on coal mines. I'm sure that they won't uh, be lacking of things to do. Yes, I can imagine. Okay, thank you so much, Alan, for making the time to talk to 3CR. Thanks for having me. Bye. That was... <clears throat> Excuse me, Alan Sandal from the Greens, Member of Parliament in Melbourne. I'll just say to you, though, I'll, I'll <laughs> play you that, uh, that 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 particular song, "Bump Me Into Parliament," an old wobbly song. A genuine left member of Parliament for many years in New South Wales, George Peterson, um, represented around um, Port Kendall area. He um, he used to sing it all the time when he was drunk. <laughs> why? Uh, why? Why did he do that? Strange. <laughs> oh, he just it, it was one of his favourite songs, and he, of course, being a member of Parliament, he'd sing it, he'd get away, and he was a lovely man, George. That anyway, it's a good song though. <laughs> it is it. a great song. Here it is. Okay. <laughs> Chris oh. Cathy does it a lot too. Okay. Uh, take it away. Here we go. A weak solidarity, Briggy team, is that when we face the clash of terrorist bombs and terrorist time bombs, terrorist bombs in Paris have forced that socialist, socialist Francois hole in the earth to ban warmest terrorists opposing the world's great resource giants, the world's fossils, taking to the streets. They, they must be so upset they have to prevent street protests to, to urge action on the terrorist time bomb facing the whole world, but only because he has the safety of the warmest at heart. Keep them safe from telling the world it is not safe. Leave the solution to the fossils who are so the experts in the fossil solution and to the great leaders they appoint to make the decisions carry out their instructions. The arms in suits, sorry, the men in suits will look on the fringes of their deep, meaningful discussions and see a few islanders, Africans, non-white men and a few women in suits calling for action to save their countries, literally, from the terrorist time bomb. And the men and few women in suits and the fossil fossils will assure them they have their interests at heart. Indeed, we will lift you backward people out of poverty, the, this God-given marvel, this miracle, this little black rock of liberation will lift you out of poverty, but sadly, as much as we'd like to and as much as we care for you and empathize with you, sadly, we won't be able to lift you out of the briny when you inevitably disappear into it. Because it would be selfish of you to prevent us from lifting the world's poor out of poverty, from showing how we really care for the world. But rest assured, we will have your best interests at heart right up until you disappear. 
and our very own Minister for Fossils, Greg Haunt the Greenies, has assured us True Blue Aussie will meet its target of reducing pollution by all of 5% and meeting our Kyoto commitment to increase pollution, which was a pretty responsible commitment, despite some long-haired commie greenie mob using nothing more reliable than facts and figures to claim Greg is putting, uh, pulling the pollution over our eyes, that he is using that Kyoto increase to, well, to put it nicely, fudge the figures. Nonsense, Greg retorted. Watch closely. You put this card here, that card there, now that thimble goes there. Are you watching closely? Put that P there, take the other card from there, move that thimble, keep watching, and pick up this card and tell me what it says. Uh, it says you've met your target. There, told you. And yet those thousands and thousands of people, well, bloody warmers, who flooded our streets last night, just mightn't have all that much faith in Greg's magic. Real magic, of course, would be taking the big decisions on preventing pollution, preventing climate change from those who pollute and their political puppets, the real terrorists, defuse the terrorist time bomb. We've mentioned before the magic ambition of our biggest polluter, brown coal power plant operator AG Hell on Earth, which has committed to getting out of destroying the Earth by 2048. What commitment? Presuming the Earth's still around. And all heart, its big supremo Andy Veazey does it, says AG Hell on Earth could get out of coal pollution even faster if the government came up with a few trillion dollars to help it. And true quote listener... I am not well enough informed to hold a personal belief in the science of climate change. But if my customers and investors believe it, I have to be responsive. See, good old Andy believes in the science of profit. But he concedes a role for government. After all, if the government is concerned about climate change, I'm happy to take your money. Speaking of flooding, as in the streets last night, as bloody huge polluter BHP's flooding now stretches into the Atlantic 700k from the disaster's source, destroying everything in its wake, bloody huge is disputing a UN of the US of the UN of the world report that the sludge is toxic, including minor problems like arsenic. Bloody huge maintaining its line since the spill that there's nothing dangerous in the tailings at all, which must leave the victims, the homeless, those without potable water, pondering what the damage might be like if it was dangerous. And apparently the thousands of dead fish along the rivers would have just died anyway. Why, a lot of the poisons are natural to the environment, they said. They actually said that. On responsible corporates, is there any other sort? The banks have launched a PR campaign to convince us they are an essential and responsible contributor to True Blue Aussie's prosperity and to explain to consumers why pushing up interest rates continually, which isn't all that good for the consumers' prosperity, is in fact good for the consumers. Surely they don't need a full-scale campaign to explain greed. They also say they will concentrate on their role in our future prosperity and no longer, quote, advocate some issues such as climate change, economic security for women and an affordable housing scheme for low-income and homeless people. Don't know about you, listener, but I had no idea they were advocating those issues. Softly, softly, obviously. 
And Price the Poor Waterhouses come up with a report, doesn't say who commissioned it, but we could take a stab, that a 5% reduction in the corporate tax rate would produce a $291 billion growth dividend for the economy. Bit like a 5% thimble and pea reduction in pollution will save the planet because it explains the corporates who don't pay tax anyway would not pocket the cut to the tax they don't pay and would employ lots more workers, which is all they care about and exist for, who would pay lots more tax. Although doesn't that mean surely there's no need to increase or broaden the GST which Price the Poor Waterhouse says we also need desperately because it's the only fair tax? Don't mention who it's fair to but they're the experts that will take their word for it. They wouldn't want workers to be paying more in tax both income and GST, would they? And of course, Price the Poor Waterhouse, so concerned that the government should net more tax, would never dream of advising its corporate clients how to go on not paying tax on the crippling tax rate they don't pay. Quite legally, of course, no suggestion of tax dodging or evasion. And on great responsible true blue Aussies, bit worried about two of the great selfless contributors to what's good for all of us, resource giant Gina and rag trade retail trillionaire Solly Lulu, so named, well it's obvious, both facing the slot for unpaid. Solly was fined 400 and something on a traffic matter. Imagine how that'll affect his bottom line. And given 30 days to pay, poor Gina hit with costs over one of her many litigations, given 24 hours to come up with the ready. Now, that ongoing inquest in Western True Blue has shown how readily non-fine payers are tossed into the slot. And if they, poor Gina and Solly, felt a bit crook about their new digs, the... Sorry, the uh, constabulary would tell medical helpers Gina and Solly are faking their illness, pretending to be dead. So let's hope our two dedicated true blue Aussies can raise the ready and not become the next victims of deaths in custody. They'd have to hold a royal commission into the national scandal of filthy rich whites' deaths in custody. A report prepared by a superannuation fund says caring employers who just forget to pay workers super are robbing workers, sorry, inadvertently costing workers, $2.6 billion a year real figure. Penalties, they say, are so severe, caring employers can be fined up to $20. Thankfully, the government has moved to act through Minister for Caring Employers' Profits, Kelly Oda, why are workers so evil? They are bringing down legislation to, this is true, reduce the penalties. Finally, because we haven't mentioned the Lord Rupert of Wapping sin so far, which condemns left-wing thugs bashing poor defenceless fascists, top marks yesterday, P1, excitement, excitement, let's get the party started, Melbourne's commercial food and commercial wine festival, big double spread inside of the huge program, P1 News, cars, one of our big polluters having slow lane pain, and the big march last night? Not a word in 96 pages, but a so-called pink piece, and what a misnomer, from the Institute of Public Very Private Affairs, Alan Moron, telling us we're all alarmists destroying the economy, climate change doesn't exist, and we simply can't afford to do anything about that which doesn't exist. 
Thank goodness we've got Lord Rupert to determine what news we need to know, what's good for all of us and what isn't, providing us with what really matters. I hope the numbers last night don't mean people have some small doubts about Lord Rupert's and Alan Moron's judgment and honesty. Good morning. Good morning, Kevin. Thank you very much for that. Thank you, Lally. The, the plummet march was fantastic, wasn't it? It was. It was great. Yeah, well, I got to Burke Street. It was it already reached Parliament, and there were loads behind me. I mean, it was amazing, yeah. I think it's the biggest march I've been to all year, really. Yeah, it's the biggest one since that march in March last year, I think. Mm, yeah. mm. It's, it's yeah. good to see people um, actually mobilising when there's proper leadership given for the right issues. <laughs> Yes, I knew it would be big. In fact, I wrote that thousands and thousands yesterday before the march, but it, <laughs> it was right. Yes, yes. Thank you so <laughs> I mean, much, it was, it was really great. Yeah, thanks, Lali. Okay, bye. Okay. PM. Okay, so we will go to um, the an interview that I did with a lawyer called Linda Bakiel. Now, Linda Bakiel is from Puerto Rico. Now, for those who are wondering where is Puerto Rico, it is actually south of another place called Dominica and then, of course, Cuba. Puerto Rico has been a colony of the USA for many, many, many years and still is almost a semi-colony. And Linda will explain that in the um, interview. So it's it's been fighting for a, a strange sort of a situation. They are partly colony, partly not colony. So let's let's go to the interview and it will make it clearer for you. Uh, good morning, um, Linda, and welcome to 3CR. Thank you so much for making the time to talk to us. Good morning. I'm delighted to be there. It's uh, still Friday afternoon where I am. I good know. morning. <laughs> yes, it is. It's, it's a 16-hour uh, difference, isn't it? Now, Puerto Rico. It's interesting because um, when Greece hit the crisis, Puerto Rico also went down, but nobody talked about Puerto Rico. And I thought we could cover a little bit of a history because I don't think many people in Australia know much about the Puerto Rican history, maybe a few. Um, the, the colonial history is an interesting one and the relationship with the U.S. I wonder if you can explain what is the connection between Puerto Rico and the U.S. for a start. Wow, what a start. Um, well, first of all, Puerto Rico's colonial history began with Spain in, uh, the, at the beginning of the 16th century. And uh, in the 19th century, at the end of the 19th century, um, the United States cooked up a splendid little war, it was called, also known as the Spanish-American War. And it was really an, a war of adventure to acquire territories. And one of the territories acquired as a result of that war uh, with Spain was Puerto Rico in um uh, 1898, uh, by means of something called the Treaty of Paris, the Spanish and uh, United States governments decided that in order to um, end the war, Spain would cede Puerto Rico to the United States essentially as a booty of war, as if it were just a piece of property. Now, at that time, the people living in Puerto Rico were citizens of Spain. They had uh, what was known as a charter of autonomy. They sent representatives to the Cortes, which is the equivalent of a parliament in Spain. 
And um, there was also a considerable agitation for even greater autonomy, i.e. independence. Um, but the relationship between Spain and Puerto Rico was severed by the Spanish-American War. And uh, in 1898, Puerto Rico became a territory or possession of the United States. It remained with that anomalous category or classification until 1952, essentially because certainly by 1948, the pro-independence sentiment was very, very strong. Uh, in 1950, there was an armed uprising revolution in Hayuya. Um, the United States uh, Air Force and Army bombed towns in Puerto Rico um, because of this uprising. And um, the United States got very nervous about being publicly uh, denounced for holding Puerto Rico as a colony, and it created a status which in Spanish is called Estado Libre Asociado, which literally translated means free associated state. The United States also declared, however, that the only acceptable official translation for Estado Libre Asociado would be Commonwealth. Um, Estado Libre Asociado, or Free Associated State, has only recently become a concept that's been uh, handled in uh, under international law. Certainly when uh, this uh, status was invented here, it did not exist, and um, it was really a, a, a cover for a very anomalous, unfree, compulsory association uh, between a huge, uh, powerful imperial power and its colony. That remains the relationship. The Supreme Court of the United States says, well, Puerto Rico can be treated as if it were a state when Congress says so, and it can be treated with more or less autonomy depending on what Congress says in specific circumstances. So it does not have the same level of benefits for um, health care, for example. Uh, the minimum wage laws apply differently. It's, it's insane. Mm. But it, it, it specifies certain um, rights or lack of rights for the Puerto Ricans, like they cannot vote for the no. U.S. senators. Puerto, Puerto Rico has no representation in the U.S. government. It sends a figurehead to Washington. He's called a resident commissioner. He um, can talk but not vote. Um, and none of the laws that are made by the United States are made with any representation from Puerto Rico. The United States administers Puerto Rico as if it were because it is a colony. But they're all U.S. citizens. Yes. In 1917, um, the United States Congress passed a law that said, henceforth, everyone who is born in Puerto Rico or living in Puerto Rico permanently will be a United States citizen unless they go to a notary public and opt out. People who want to remain Spanish citizens have to go and opt out of that. There was never any provision for people becoming citizens of Puerto Rico. Um, and uh, some people did go and opt out, but at that 
time, 1917, um, Puerto Rico was largely rural, largely poor. Most people didn't even know their citizenship had been changed and um, didn't, couldn't afford or know how to make the trip to find a notary and pay a notary to go through the steps that they had to do to remain Spanish citizens. So, yes, they are citizens of the United States. So it's a very anomalous situation for them. And it's interesting how the U.S. also has used Puerto Rico against the Cuban Revolution. And it seems that Puerto Rico has been a pawn in this game between U.S. and the USSR in the form of fighting against the concept that Cuba... Um, has portrayed through its revolution. Would that be right? Well, very right. I mean, the United States was eager to own Puerto Rico because it wanted a military bastion in the Eastern Caribbean. And um, that's what it got with Puerto Rico. And its strategic importance was uh, enormous while the United States depended on the U.S. Navy for its military power. Um, As that waned, the uh, strategic value of Puerto Rico uh, decreased considerably, but it retained a geopolitical value um, because of its proximity and similarity to Cuba, the intense um, relationship between Puerto Rico and Cuba. There's a a saying, uh, part of a Poem, I think of Jose Marti. I can't actually remember. It's a popular song. It's repeated over and over again. That says Cuba y Puerto Rico son dos de un pájaro, dos alas. Recibe flores y alas. Ah, ah, I, I can't quote it literally, but <laughs> it says Puerto Rico and Cuba are two wings of the same bird, and uh, it receives bullets and flowers in the same heart. You shoot one, you get the other, and you kill the other. Um, they're, they're sister peoples, um, very, very similar culture, um, idiosyncrasies, food, music. And, in fact, Puerto Rico's uh, war for independence was planned and intended to be carried out simultaneously with that of Spain, that is, the the uprising in the 19th century for independence from Spain. Um, So uh, the similarities are very, very um, obvious, historic, cultural, ethnic, and the United States wanted to have the benefit of this other little jewel in the Caribbean to say, look how happy you can be under uh, capitalism. Yes, <laughs> and it built up. It apparently poured resources into Puerto Rico to make it appear to be that jewel and shining in the Caribbean while they wanted to show Cuba as a communist state that would not be as wonderful because they had the trade embargo against Cuba. Well, it didn't exactly pour resources into Puerto Rico. What it did was make Puerto Rico accessible for U.S. uh, businesses and investors, and Mm -hmm. it made it possible for them to um, pull a lot of resources and money out of Puerto Rico, which is what colonies have always been good for Mm. economically. Mm. And, yes, in the process, there were some um, roads that were paved in order to make movement of troops much easier. Um, There were certain things that were done to um, make things cosmetically better. But 
it's really a fallacy to think that the United States poured resources into Puerto Rico. It, it made it uh, a fertile ground for um, U.S. Uh, companies and military to exploit. And as a result, there was more capital in Puerto Rico than there had been when the United States arrived. And since the um, agreement between Cuba and um, the U.S., how has things traveled? Well, you know, Puerto Rico is totally out there in the forefront with official delegations and, and small business delegations and the Secretary of State and um, seminars and, um, you know, people here are jumping to do business with Cuba and Cuba is very ready to do business with Puerto Rico because we know each other. Mm. You've got a long history. Very long history. Mm. So... In, in relation to trying to trace back this, initially Puerto Rico was a pawn between Spain and the U.S. And at the moment, um, when the significance of the Cuban existence 90 miles south of um, the U.S. is being neutralized to a certain extent, Puerto Rico is losing its significance in the geopolitical arena because... U.S. doesn't need Puerto Rico anymore as an example of how wonderful Templeton can be. And that, that makes it very difficult for the Puerto Ricans because if the, as it's happened in, over the last few years, if the business people in the U.S. withdraw their capital, then the country falls apart. Yes. Uh, actually, you know, the, the great recession uh, in, well, the international financial crisis um, was already beginning in 2006. Yes. and the um, pro-statehood local party governor um, had, uh, and, and party had this notion that if the U.S. corporations no longer got benefits for investing in Puerto Rico, they would precipitate an economic crisis which would obligate the United States to rescue Puerto Rico because it wouldn't want to see its little vitrine, uh, its showcase, um, you know, fall apart. And so they um, told Congress that there was that this uh, tax benefit called Section 936 of the U.S. Internal Revenue Code um, was really not necessary, not doing any good. It was phased out, and it was phased out over a period of 10 years, those 10 years um, culminated in 2006, and um, the economy went bust. If you've just tuned in, you're listening to Solidarity Breakfast on 3CR, 855 on your AM dial, and of course, streaming live on the web. And we also podcast all our programs. You're welcome to listen to it at your leisure. We will continue the interview with Linda Backhill, who is a lawyer from Puerto Rico. Okay, so... In June, um, I read that you, the unemployment rate was over 12%, and I guess it's worsening as time goes by. The yeah, it's close to 14%. Very important. Um, you know, one of, one, one of the things that Republicans in Congress are upset about, but it, there's a grain of truth in it, is that it's really hard to get um, clear statistics about what's going on anywhere, um, and particularly in Puerto Rico, because it's just not – Part of the culture. Anyway, 
Um, when people talk about unemployment, I guess everywhere, but certainly here, we're talking about official unemployment. That's the number of people who are registered as workers who were employed within the last, I can't remember how long, and uh, currently looking for work but don't have it. It does not include the never employed, the underemployed, and the discouraged, those who have stopped looking for work. Um, we have an active labor force of only about 40% of those who could be employed. So 14% sounds like okay, but it's not, I mean, it sounds bad, but not disastrous. It doesn't begin to reflect the reality of the underemployed, the uh, discouraged workers, the never employed, and the, it does not account for the huge out-migration which is taking place. Mm. And, and the flight of capital has continued to take place, which has now pushed Puerto Rico into an enormous crisis. But Puerto Rico is not in a position to even declare bankruptcy because of this relationship it has with the U.S. Well, right. Um, and this is really complicated. U.S. bankruptcy law is incredibly, ridiculously complicated. But let me just explain this. The Puerto Rican debt, which is uh, close to $72 billion, um, is composed of many, many different uh, debts, some of which belong to the central government, some of which belong to public utilities, primarily the electric and water utilities, and some of which belong to other kinds of government uh, corporations and municipalities. In the United States, no state can declare bankruptcy, but municipalities and state uh, agencies can declare bankruptcy if the state or municipality authorizes their corporations or subdivisions to to do so. And um, that's what Puerto Rico would like to do, would like to authorize um, the two major debt generators, that is the electric company and the water authority, to declare bankruptcy, and also a number of municipalities. It cannot do that because in 1984, when Congress was reauthorizing and rewriting the bankruptcy code, it forgot to say anything at all about Puerto Rico. And because it forgot to say anything at all about Puerto Rico, it has been uh, interpreted as meaning that Puerto Rico does not have the power to authorize its agencies or um, municipalities or independent corporations to declare bankruptcy. So that option is off the table. Hmm. It's interesting. For a, a population of 3.2 million people, that is a massive amount of debt. Um, and as you've detailed whether that's actually said, it's interesting to see how the corporations are the ones who actually owe this money and not the people. But the, the, the section of the community that's suffering are the people. Like 84% of children in Puerto Rico live under the poverty line. And children, the elderly, and single mothers hmm. um, are, are suffering hugely, lacking in food and medicine. So what is the political response by the parties? We're not familiar with all the parties in Puerto Rico, but how are the political parties responding to this crisis? Um, 
there are essentially, there are three electoral parties in Puerto Rico, three parties that campaign for um, the positions in the legislature and the governor. Each one represents a different status option. That's that's the question around which they are organized. So one favors statehood, one favors something like the current uh, status with um, greater autonomy, and one favors independence. Mm. The independence party um, is in deep electoral trouble. It cannot maintain 4% of the vote. Um, so it's not really uh, a, a, an electoral player at this point. Uh, some brilliant economists, some well-intentioned people, some international statespersons, but um, that's that's their situation. So it's the statehood and the um, pro-commonwealth, or whatever you want to call this thing, um, parties that alternate power. Mm. Presently in power is the um, pro-commonwealth party. It tends to be uh, less a, a party of the elite and more oriented towards the working class and the middle class. It is currently in power. It came into power inheriting huge debt that was generated by the U.S. and international economic crisis, the decision of the pro-statehood party to allow the Section 936 to be phased out, massive corruption and just a stacking of the national resources while the pro-statehood party was in power. So this uh, current government comes into power, inherits the debt, has um, proposed quite a few emergency measures, and is currently trying to um, convince the U.S. Congress to in some way um, support the creation of a single new bond that would consolidate all of Puerto Rico's debt, reduce payments, reduce the interest rate, and extend the term of payment. Because otherwise, we're going to have a very serious humanitarian disaster on our hands. Mm. That plan is supported by the executive branch of the U.S. government, that is the Barack Obama administration, and his Secretary of the Treasury, Jack Lew. Um, but, you know, the executive in the United States can't get anything done in Congress. And they're telling Puerto Rico, you have to get Congress to approve something. If Barack Obama cannot get Congress to approve his uh, signal projects, such as immigration reform, how in the world is Puerto Rico, which has zero representation, going to accomplish this? Nobody has explained this to anyone that I know. Mm. Greece, for example, um, has sought solidarity with other countries in the EU. Now, does Puerto Rico seek any sort of political solidarity with the Latin American countries around that region? Yes, and it has solidarity, but the difference is Greece belongs to the EU. Mm. Greece can negotiate debt with the EU, or it can decide that it's not going to take the EU terms and withdraw from the EU. Puerto Rico does not have the power to join any international union. The only 
the, the way that Puerto Rico gets international support is informally and through NGOs. And um, Puerto Rico has, uh, attends and is invited uh, to send representatives to many regional conferences and things, but it may not appear as a government because it doesn't have one on the international level. It's oh, not dear. recognized. So it's a very difficult situation for the Puerto Ricans at this stage. You need neither here nor there. You're in, in limbo, really. That's the reality of being a colony. And, and the colonization, anti-colonial forces are not strong enough to, to raise the issue at a level where it becomes of international significance. So far, it hasn't. So thank you so much, Linda. That is um, very um, informative because we hear very little about Puerto Rico because it's on the other side of the world. We hear a lot about Cuba. Uh, because the U.S. chooses to do certain things with Cuba, so it hits the news, but we never hear about the failed capitalist um, experiments and the colonialism that uh, U.S. continues to exert on, on countries like Puerto Rico. Well, thank you for helping to rescue us from uh, anonymity. Thank you very much. Thank you, Linda. Bye-bye. That was Linda Bacchio, a lawyer from Puerto Rico, who gave us a rundown of what's happening there. <clears throat> We've come to the end of the <clears throat> excuse me, come to the end of the program. I'm cutting it really fine here. Pierre is standing here over my shoulders waiting for me to finish it up. Let's thank Dick Nichols, uh, Alan Saunders from the Greens, and of course Linda Backhill and not forgetting Uncle Kevin Healy. Now you guys have a good week and I'll be back in a fortnight. Enjoy your weekend. You've been listening to a 3CR podcast produced in the studios of independent community radio station 3CR in Melbourne, Australia. For more information, go to allthews.3cr.org.au.